Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Journalists sometimes look back wistfully to the days when we used to have a silly season. When the news occasionally stopped, packed up and went on holiday. There was no room for that in 2020. In the relentless barrage of events, the world around us has changed at breakneck speed. This week, we wanted to stop and digest some of the seismic shifts this year has brought. And nowhere have those changes been more marked than in America. From the presidential election to the devastating outbreak of coronavirus. From Black Lives Matter to the election of the first female black vice president. It's been a year of high drama and sweeping change in America. And the Times correspondents in the country have been there, on the front line, reporting on it all. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, 2020 the year that changed America. breaking political news, CNN now told Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is suspending his campaign for the presidency. This, of course, in a campaign that has been put on pause by the coronavirus. Listen, listen, China ate your lunch, Joe. You're the the worst president America has ever had. Come on. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just want to make sure. sure. I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, not first in your class. I want to make sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? He doesn't know how to do that. I voted for a guy named Trump. Thank you very much, everybody. In Nevada, the two candidates are neck and neck, and the state will release more results on Thursday. After four long, tense days, we've reached a historic moment in this election. We can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. Come on, don't be, don't be ridiculous. Networks don't get to decide elections. 
courts do. The people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. We've won with the most votes ever cast on presidential ticket in the history of the nation. 74 million. I'm Henry Zeffman, and I am Washington correspondent for The Times. For Henry and everyone in D.C., 2020 has been the year of the U.S. elections. Having charted every twist and turn for months, for Henry, one of the pivotal moments came early on in the year. In the clamour of the Democratic primaries amid a legion of candidates, a veteran black congressman single-handedly changed the race in favour of Joe Biden. I don't think it's an obvious most important moment of the year, but I think it might be one of the most important moments in shaping world politics for a very long time indeed. This was in late February when a man called James Clyburn made an intervention in the South Carolina Democratic primary. James Clyburn is a veteran Democratic congressman. He's 80. He'd been involved in South Carolina politics since the civil rights movement and rose through Congress pretty pretty quickly. Uh, He's a very senior power broker in Washington. He's Nancy Pelosi's number three in her leadership team and has been throughout her tenure at the top of the Democratic Party. So that's 17 years now, 18 years nearly. But he's a power broker in South Carolina too. South Carolina is always one of the early presidential nominating states and a must-attend event for people who want to be the Democratic president is to go to Jim Clyburn's annual South Carolina fish fry, which is where he, or I suppose people on his behalf, serve up breaded fried fish in South Carolina style to presidential candidates who then speak to South Carolina activists. And that really matters if they intend to win South Carolina's votes. And he tends to back winners. So a lot of eyes were trained on Jim Clyburn. Was he going to anoint someone? So what shape was Joe Biden's campaign in before the South Carolina primary? Now, if you told me a year ago that Joe Biden was going to be the Democratic presidential nominee, I'd have said, yes, that makes total sense. He's the favourite. But if you told me in early February, just after Joe Biden was humiliated in Iowa, which is the first one, came fourth, even further humiliated in New Hampshire, which is the second, he came fifth, and then a dismal second place far behind Bernie Sanders in Nevada, I'd have been stunned. Now, to be fair to Joe Biden, his campaign had been saying throughout, wait until we get to South Carolina. It's the first state where the Democratic electorate looks like the Democratic Party in the nation, by which they basically meant it was the first one of the four first primary states which had a large number of black people, who, of course, form a large part of the Democratic voter base. So he limped into South Carolina with no money, no support, everyone basically feeling sorry for this old man, former vice president, who decided to come back for one last try, and it looked like his third presidential campaign was going as terribly as his first two. Then South Carolina changed everything. And James Clyburn seems to have swung an extraordinary number of people behind Joe Biden in that state. It is time for us to restore this country's dignity, this country's respect, 
that is what is at stake this year. And I can think of no one better suited, better prepared. I can think of no one with the integrity, no one more committed to the fundamental principles to make this country what it is. But my good friend, my late wife's great friend, Joe Biden. He gave a speech, he said, I know Joe Biden, I know his character, his heart, his record. We know Joe, but more importantly, he knows us. And and as a result, Joe Biden didn't just win South Carolina. He trounced his rivals. I mean, he almost got 50% of the vote, even though there were, I think by that point, six or seven candidates properly contesting the primary, most of all whom had spent far more money than him in the state. The South Carolina primary was on the Saturday. On the Tuesday was Super Tuesday, where loads of states voted. And Joe Biden won loads of states on Super Tuesday. I mean, the speed of the turnaround, because it's been such a tumultuous year, we have understandably forgotten how weird those primaries were. But I think in the fullness of time, we will realise that Joe Biden's political comeback was one of the most extraordinary and rapid political comebacks that have ever happened uh, in American politics. And it all started in South Carolina? It all started with Jim Clyburn. If things had fallen in a slightly different way, and if he hadn't become the candidate, do you think any of the others he was pitted against would have stood a chance against Donald Trump? My strong suspicion is that is that Joe Biden is the only person who could have beaten Donald Trump. Joe Biden won the primaries in, in large part because of his support from generally city-living black voters. But in the presidential election, I think his real strength was reassuring lifelong Republicans who are wealthy that he was a safe vote for their first ever Democratic presidential vote, basically. And I struggle to identify another Democratic presidential candidate who might have reassured enough voters in the same way. So... No, I think that's why I said earlier Clyburn's endorsement had huge ramifications for world politics. I think you can trace a line from Jim Clyburn endorsing Joe Biden to Joe Biden being the nominee. And I think you can trace a very clear line from Joe Biden being the nominee to Donald Trump losing this election. The South Carolina primaries helped to shape history. But 2020 was just getting started on that score. Within weeks of the primaries, coronavirus arrived in America one of the first cities it hit was New York. So my name's Laura Pullman. I'm the New York correspondent of the Sunday Times. And Laura, back in March and April, we spoke to you because you were living through sort of the front line of coronavirus, really. Welcome back. A staggering statistic today from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, his state now has more than 25,000 coronavirus cases, almost 10 times more any other state, with cases doubling every three days in New York State. Tell us a bit about what was happening to life in, in New York. It's quite hard to make sense of it still, I think. I don't think enough time has really passed. And it's not something I spend a huge amount of time going back to because 
I think it just was so harrowing. I think the main things that I remember, how empty the streets were, you know, the word eerie (laughs) was used a lot and it was used for a reason. It was eerie. New York is such a loud city and suddenly it was silent, save for the sounds of sirens. I live in a tiny apartment, so my flatmate and I, she's a teacher and she was working from home and she's become... I'm going to get emotional talking about it. Um, she's become family to me. I'll pull myself together, but I didn't know this woman a year and a half ago. And we have spent, God, <laughs> I don't know how many hours we've spent together this year. It was a terrifying time and more than 700 people were dying a day. That's obviously quite a hard number to to comprehend, but it was when I went to visit a funeral home that I think the reality of what this city and this state and the world, of course, were going through, it was that day which I'll always remember. It was in mid-April that I went to visit a funeral home in Brooklyn, a neighbourhood called Sunset Park, which is a very Latino uh, part of Brooklyn. Sabrina DeRiso runs this funeral home. She's 24 and she is the most glamorous undertaker (laughs) that you could wish to meet. I mean, she had long blonde hair. She was wearing sunglasses on the top of her head, I remember. It wasn't a particularly sunny day. We were meeting inside, so I I very much (laughs) noticed the sunnies. And she was wearing really high stilettos and all black. She was fabulous. And um, she was very smiley, but Beyond all the glamour, you could see that this was a woman who was working horrific hours and who was kind of at her breaking point. I remember speaking to to Sabrina in the kind of lobby of the funeral home and this grieving woman came in and she was in her early 20s. And her grandfather and her grandmother had just died from coronavirus within days of each other. And she was explaining to me that her grandparents had very much brought her up. And she was heaving, sobbing, that crying where you can't quite get out your words. And what was so horrific was, obviously, we were all wearing masks, so you can only see half of somebody's face. I can't hug her. I can't kind of physically comfort her in any way, which is what I really wanted to do. And so you're trying to show her with your eyes how much you you care. But as I said to you earlier, you know, when you hear more than 700 people are dying in New York State a day, it's so hard to put that into any sort of context. But when you've got one individual standing in front of you and telling you through heaving sobs that two people who are closest to them in the world really have died within days of each other that is a way to really bring something into focus and um and 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 that was a a a real uh moment of grounding for me now around this time coronavirus was clearly affecting everything and you wrote another piece which just highlighted some of the really surprising effects on the city tell me about the rats Now, Bambina, I'm not suggesting to any Times readers or Sunday Times readers that New York rats is kind of one of the stories of 2020. (laughs) But for me personally, this will be a story that will stay with me and haunt me (laughs) until until my final days. Um, In a room 101 sort of a way. (laughs) 
Um, so I had read in the New York Times that rats were being affected by the pandemic, just like their human neighbours. Because all the restaurants had closed down, there was no rubbish being left on the streets, big bags of rubbish of restaurant leftovers. And this is traditionally how New York's lucky rats feast every night. But because they didn't have that, they were having to turn on each other and become increasingly cannibalistic. I think it was the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, a major health watchdog out here, had warned of, quote, unusual, aggressive rodent behavior. So I went down a kind of rabbit hole, as it were, of New York's rats. And I found out about a society called Riders Alley Trencher Fed Society, and they're better known as rats. And I got in touch with them on Facebook and um, asked whether I could go out with them one evening to do their activity, which was rat hunting. And it was a memorable night. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me all about it. Shall I launch in? Yeah, tell me. What, what was it like? Because for most people, that, that is the worst assignment imaginable. The first time that I was doing a kind of social activity was walking across the Williamsburg Bridge from Brooklyn, where I live, into Manhattan. And they'd agreed to meet me kind of at 10 p.m. in the dark under a bridge. And so I waited there for them to arrive. And soon these four men turned up separately in their cars, along with their terriers. Their condition for me joining them was, you're not just going to come out with us as a journalist, if you want to do this, you have to get involved as well. You will have a terrier and you will be rat hunting. My terrier was a nine-month-old puppy and very much a rookie at rat hunting. And I'm obviously a first-time rat hunter. And, um, and so we were the rookies of the group. These men, the Rat Society, took it deeply seriously. And I didn't want to be as the newbie and the only woman... <laughs> kind of a squealing, screaming mess. But I've got to say the first time that we had five or six rats running out towards us, I couldn't help but just let out I'm an not absolute surprised. scream. I, I think most of us would. But the, the most horrific moment of the night, we were up against some wire fencing, very much cornered in. And so many rats ran towards us, but they had nowhere to go. The rats weren't able to escape either. They were running all over my feet. I mean, it was <laughs> it was truly horrific. And also Zoe would get one in her mouth and thrash it around and there'd be kind of blood everywhere. And also the rats bite back. But one oh. of the guys said, you know, if there's no blood, it's not a good night or something along those <laughs> lines. Um, but for every rat we caught, I, without exaggeration, a dozen, 20 rats would shoot past us into the night. Oh, that's so bleak. Did it change the way you looked at New York? I mean, it made me quite sad, to be honest, because the area where we were, we were going around a lot of low-income housing and huge apartment blocks. And the people living in these, these apartment blocks who were out on the street kind of having a smoke and, and, and chatting, were so grateful to the rat hunters because they had small children, they were telling us, and they would have to put their small children, kind of give them a piggyback or whatever, because their children didn't want to walk to their front door because then levels of rats. And that broke my heart, the idea that, that people are having to, to live in that sort of situation. 
We'll have more from a remarkable year in America in just a moment. But if you'd like to access more of the foreign coverage at The Times and The Sunday Times, then you might want to consider a digital subscription. Join today and enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Protests intensifying overnight in Minneapolis. Four police officers were fired after their involvement in the death of George Floyd. Police lined the streets, throwing tear gas and non-lethal projectiles to disperse crowds after thousands flooded the streets Tuesday. Anger boiling over in the community when a cell phone video was shot Monday night showing a police officer with his knee to Floyd's neck while he's on the ground, handcuffed. For several long minutes, George Floyd told the officer he couldn't breathe as bystanders pleaded with officers that Floyd was struggling. So George Floyd was killed on Memorial Day, which was May 25th. It was a Monday. George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed whilst in police custody. And there was footage filmed by a teenage witness, which very quickly seemed to go viral online, just stopping the world in its tracks. The video shows three officers pinning George Floyd to the ground, with one of them kneeling on his neck for nearly nine minutes as he struggled and cried out and eventually went limp. Do you remember your reaction when you first saw it? I do. I mean, it's just one of those horrific videos where you tense every muscle in your body and you have to kind of force yourself to to keep watching it. And it feels important to watch it. You know, it feels important, of course, as a journalist, if you're writing about it, that you have to understand what went on. But it feels important if you're living in a country where that is going on, that you confront it. Um, You know, he said, I can't breathe at least 16 times in less than five minutes. He he cried out for his mother, his late mother. You know, it's unbelievably horrifying to watch. In the days that followed the killing of George Floyd, the streets of Minneapolis erupted in protest. I 
arrived on the Friday morning, I just knew I needed to get straight to Cup Foods, which was the delicatessen in downtown Minneapolis where George Floyd had been killed on the Monday. If you'd arrived and you hadn't got any context of, mm. of what was going on, it, it felt like a kind of street party. The air was full of barbecue smoke. People were handing out free burgers and free hot dogs. And there was gospel music playing out of cars. There, were lo- there was a lady playing the guitar, I remember. Um, there were a lot of artists and murals. And of course, just a kind of carpet of flowers as well. Um, and there were lots of families. And I don't remember there being a heavy police presence at all. And occasionally the crowd would break out into chanting George Floyd's name or chanting kind of no justice, no peace, which has obviously become a huge rallying cry. So when you actually got there and, and you were talking to people on the ground, what sort of things were they saying to you? Locals were referencing the police killings in Minneapolis of Jamar Clark, a black man who'd been killed in 2015. And then there was a famous case with a man called Philando Castile, who was killed in his car by a police officer in 2016. So there was also just this utter exhaustion that how are we still having this same conversation and this same heartache and the same agony and how is nothing changing? You stayed in Minneapolis for several days as the protests raged. What was that like? I'd been out on the Saturday afternoon, but the protest for that afternoon had been very peaceful. And there were leaders of that protest who had their speaker phones. And as it got into the evening and the 8pm curfew was approaching, they were really imploring people through their speakerphones to sit down and saying there is no way that this can be perceived by the police and the authorities as anything but a peaceful protest if everyone is sitting down. And the vast majority of people agreed and sat down. But at the back of the crowd, there were people refusing to sit down. So of course, I I went to speak to them because, you know, you can spot the troublemakers pretty easily in a situation like that. Some people I spoke to did seem to be Antifa. They were wearing black, they were wearing helmets, they'd come prepared. Um, And it happened so quickly that that the atmosphere had been fizzing with tension. We got closer and closer to 8pm and then 8pm passes. And it happens so quickly, but you see the National Guard and police, uh, you know, with all their riot gear and their shields and their guns and all the rest of it coming down the roads to the protesters. In an instant, suddenly, there are protesters throwing fireworks and rocks and bottles, and then the police are firing back with tear gas and plastic bullets. It was the first time I've ever been hit with tear gas, and it's horrible your eyes are watering and stinging and your throat is immediately itchy. I mean, it sounds it sounds terrifying. Did you get a sense then that this wasn't going to go away, this, this if anything, might spread? I can't pretend that I knew just how seismic it was going to be, but it, it felt like this is not a story that is going to go away anytime soon. And where do you think the Black Lives Matter movement will go next? Has it sort of petered out or is there more to come? I don't think it's petered out. I I think they have now, sadly, got a little bit of a problem when it comes to kind of reputation and they have been lumped in with rioters and looting. And for a lot of 
white conservative Americans, they refuse to or are unable to make the distinction between people who are fighting for racial justice in this country and violence and anarchy and looting. And it's such a huge organization, Black Lives Matter, but it's also a pretty new organization and it's still finding its feet, but it's not going away. And and it'll be really interesting to see whether hopefully that they can harness this year and keep people's attention on it and, and keep fighting for change that's so urgently needed in this country and of course elsewhere. As America grappled with a legacy of racism, the pandemic continued to rage. It looked more and more like coronavirus could shape the election. But in Washington, Henry Zeffman watched as the Trump presidency took another unexpected lurch in October. This will always be, for me, the most stunning, I suppose, moment of America's coronavirus crisis, which was standing in my living room here in northwest Washington, D.C., and hearing above my head the rotation of the Marine One chopper taking Donald Trump to Walter Reed Hospital to be treated for coronavirus. This is an NBC News special report. Here's Lester Holt. Good afternoon, everyone. We're coming on the air with breaking news. President Trump, who tested positive late last night for the COVID-19 virus and has been experiencing what the White House is calling mild symptoms, is about to be taken to Walter Reed Army Medical Center as a precaution. I will always remember as well where I was when I, when I discovered that Donald Trump had contracted coronavirus earlier that week. He announced it very late at night, but I was late filing an essay for the Saturday paper and was up sitting at my kitchen table, wondering why I was still awake at that time, but finishing this piece. It was well past midnight. Donald Trump suddenly tweeted that he and Melania had tested positive for coronavirus. And your mind instantly races through the possibilities. He's 74 years old and it is a serious illness. Obviously, in journalistic terms, the fact that he contracted it was surely linked to the fact that he had openly flouted his own government's advice on social distancing, on masks, on uh, limiting large gatherings and so on throughout the year. Look, when he was flown to hospital, it's no great secret that a lot of Americans, a lot of journalists in America, but also a lot of members of the Republican Party spent a few days wondering what on earth they did if he didn't recover. And I I remember at the time, there wasn't very much information around. We were having a series of very surreal press conferences where nobody seemed to have many answers. He has not received any supplemental oxygen. He's not on oxygen right now, that's right. He's not received any at all? He's he's not needed any any, uh, this morning today at all. That's right. Has he ever been on supplemental oxygen? He, right now, he is not on oxygen. I know you keep saying right right. now, but should we read into the fact that he had been previously? Yesterday and today, he was not on oxygen. There was a very weird series of press conferences with, I think he was called Sean Conley, who is the physician to to the White House, who not just didn't answer a series of simple questions, but was actively evasive. 
Thursday, no oxygen, none at this moment. Yeah, and yesterday with the team, uh, while, while we were all here, he was not on oxygen. I feel for him. I mean, he's a genuine, I think, Navy physician who was promoted into the job of his life, I'm sure, and then discovered that he was working for a president who was watching his press conferences from behind him in the hospital and would have been furious if Connolly had admitted that he was doing anything other than brilliantly, even though we all knew by the fact that he was in hospital that, of course, he wasn't doing brilliantly. The whole period was very strange. You had... Republican politicians falling over themselves to wish him well. You had Joe Biden pulling his negative adverts from TV. It was a few days where it just felt like America was holding its breath to see whether whether Donald Trump was going to recover or not. Tell us about the recovery, because in some ways it did seem near miraculous. We know that he was trying some fairly experimental treatments, but suddenly he burst back onto the stage again. Tell us about that. He was treated with... In particular, one experimental antibody treatment, which at the time had not been approved by the FDA, which is America's main regulator for general use. I mean, his doctors really did just try everything on him. And within a few days, he staged a dramatic return to the White House. I mean, it was all slightly ridiculous. Posing on the balcony, had cameras there and everything. And at that point, I mean, he still didn't look great. You could see his chest heaving and that he was a bit breathless as he mounted the steps. Do you think, in some ways, because Donald Trump made such a a, a visible recovery so quickly, even though he was using experimental drugs and everything else, do you think it might have had the effect of convincing a lot of people that maybe it wasn't that serious? I think it will only have convinced people who were already susceptible to that line of argument because America's attitude to the virus has become polarised on, you know, almost exactly the same lines as its political divides. But sure, I think it probably will have been seen by some Republicans in particular as the final evidence that this was a recoverable condition. And finally, take us on to your last big moment of the year. The most obvious one, perhaps, was on... November the 7th. It wasn't until November the 7th, four nail-biting days after the presidential election, that the results were finally called. I remember just waking up incredibly tired that day. It was the Saturday after the Tuesday that had been election day. Obviously, I'd been working at breakneck pace right up to the election. And then all through election week as well. It was initially unclear what the result was going to be on the night. And then you had these trickles of votes coming in from key states. And by Thursday, Friday, it was pretty clear, though not totally clear, that it was a matter of time until Biden overtook Trump in Pennsylvania and probably Georgia. But it was unclear when the networks were going to call it for Biden. And this very weird thing in America, because the Electoral College doesn't meet until early mid-December to formally decide the winner of the presidential election, it is kind of down to the various TV networks to just say, OK, look, we've got some boffins in the room behind us and it is now impossible that anyone other than Joe Biden has won. And finally, on Saturday, November the 7th, they did say that. First CNN and then the others cascaded behind them very quickly. The Fox News decision desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania and Nevada, putting him over the 270 electoral votes he needs to become the 46th president of the United States. I didn't have CNN on at the time. It was perhaps the first time that week when I hadn't had Wolf Blitzer and John King in the background. But I knew 
because I heard a load of car horns honking outside my window. So I looked out the window and then I realised, oh, right, they are celebrating. Now, look, admittedly, I live in Washington, D.C. is the most democratic part of the country. But, I mean, it was the fervour of the fall of a regime rather than the end in a democratic political process. Pots and pans being banged. I mean, I took a walk outside my house and was swept down to the White House by the current of people who were all just jubilant. And, um, you know, it really was a carnival atmosphere for the rest of the weekend, at least in Washington, D.C. Yeah, we were seeing pictures coming out of New York and lots of big cities where there were similar scenes, of people singing and dancing. Were people marking the end of an administration more than they were celebrating the start of the new one? I think for most of the revellers, it was an opportunity to glory with fellow thinkers in the fact that, as they would see it, their four-year national nightmare was coming to an end. It was such a protracted process. You're right, it did turn into an election week, and it's still not quite over. How do you see it how do you see it playing out? We've had a very odd, stunted transition. What do we have to look forward to for both Biden and Donald Trump in the coming few months? I don't know if Donald Trump will ever properly accept his defeat. I think what we are going to get is a long, long sulk. It's unclear as it stands whether he will go to Joe Biden's inauguration. There's some reports that he might fly to Florida and hold a simultaneous rally, sort of establishing himself as a shadow president, I suppose. Or or perhaps even on that day, on Inauguration Day, announcing his 2024 campaign. I think it is clear that Donald Trump is not going away, that he retains huge support in the Republican Party, and it is something that a Biden presidency is going to just have to accept. Joe Biden talks of unity and of bringing America together and all of that, which is a nice aspiration. But the reality is that not far off half of American voters are loyal to Donald Trump. And that's not going to change just because Joe Biden swears the oath of office. As 2020 draws to a close, America is still a country divided. Coronavirus is still sweeping across the states. President Trump is still refusing to accept the results of the election. And the path to the inauguration of President Biden on January the 20th is still oddly uncertain. In his last few weeks in power, as he issues controversial pardons and makes divisive appointments, all eyes will be on Donald Trump. 2020 has been a turbulent year for America, but 2021 already looks like it could be a worthy successor. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times Washington correspondent Henry Zeffman and Laura Pullman, the New York correspondent for the Sunday Times. You can read more of Laura and Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Oliver Adamson and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. And if you have a story that you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you soon.
rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.